Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with an intriguing new work commissioned by us from Annika Sokolovsky. Annika's a composer who's written for the Albany Symphony a couple of times before, most notably on our fantastic Water Music New York series uh, two summers ago when we took the orchestra down the Erie Canal from Albany to Buffalo, playing different concerts of new and old music. Uh, her piece was the one we performed at Maybe Farms in Schenectady, a collaboration with Capital Repertory Theater and Maggie Cahill, an incredible piece about immigration and immigrants coming to America. And based on that and some other experiences we had, I asked her if she'd be willing to contribute a new work to our pre-Valentine's Day weekend concert. And she very graciously accepted and wrote a piece called Gaze, really ostensibly about that moment when you lock eyes with another person and at first feel a little bit uncomfortable and then are able to sort of gaze deep into their being in a sort of powerful way of, of kind of interacting with another soul. I should mention first that Annika is a doctoral student just finishing her doctorate at Princeton University. She also did a master's degree at the University of Michigan and is a very intriguing composer. She's very much occupied with sort of space and time and actually silence in her music. So her music is often fairly quiet, not necessarily in this piece, but there are also places where she kind of plays with the idea of pauses and of silence and a very different and, and very fluid and, and, and undulating and often contrasting uh, extreme dynamics. Interestingly, she's also a huge fan of Dolly Parton. Annika is herself a folk singer and has actually sung on a a wonderful Michael Doherty project we did about Woody Guthrie and uh, performs as a folk artist, both as a a singer and also as a folk violinist. Uh, So she's very much steeped in country music and folk music, and her absolute hero is Dolly Parton. And it was very interesting to have her with us for the week because she spoke quite extensively about what it is about Dolly Parton she loves. And even in the pre-concert talk, she mentioned that, and then I made sure to remind her that she should also mention that her music sounds absolutely nothing itself like Dolly Parton. So if you're expecting a kind of country western tune or something that's very melodic and and soulful in that way, uh, you may be disappointed. It's a very different, much more abstract kind of music that Annika's creating. But she spoke a lot about what it is she loves about Dolly Parton in addition to her persona, her her personality, uh, and just her, her wonderful vocal gifts. But it's that within her voice, uh, when you listen closely, or if you actually like sort of put a microscope on her her voice, you hear all these incredibly detailed and very minute kinds of uh, vocal changes just in the way she inflects text and the way she uses her voice. And in a certain way, I guess what what I found fascinating is that Annika's music uh, has all these little uh, swells and sudden louds and softs inside these fairly melodic lines that she develops that give it a kind of strange sensation of actually like being this amplified version of of vocal music. So I think that's kind of what finds its way into Annika's uh, music and also the, the idea of authenticity, of trying to do something that's really direct and powerfully communicative. 
So this is just about an eight-minute work. It begins really kind of atmospherically with, without much concrete structure. You just hear these different strange harmonies and sounds, uh, two instruments playing at once at the beginning. It's an oboe and a, a trombone and a little bit disjunct. And then what begins to emerge from this is uh, kind of little bits of melodic material that actually Annika said sort of kind of was inspired by Sibelius. So these kind of wonderfully amorphous but kind of ur melodic materials emerge. And then it goes back to the, the more atmospheric strange uh, sound sensationals. And then eventually from this emerges an oboe solo and then a whole string section solo that turns into a long melodic thing. But as I I mentioned earlier, sort of has this very um, involved internal inflection going on of sort of this vocal vocalization inflection inside this long line. And then it eventually reveals a little bit more melody and comes to the end. It's a a very kind of haunting piece. And uh, uh, I actually thought it was quite charming in its very modern and not at all Dolly Parton-like way. So here it is, the world premiere of Annika Sokolovsky's brand new work that she wrote for this Valentine's Day concert, Gaze. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Annika's piece really acted as a kind of a portal into the rest of the concert, this very romantic, early romantic, lovely, luscious world of Chopin and Schumann. Uh, We uh, wanted to feature the Chopin Second Piano Concerto because actually in my very long tenure with the Albany Symphony, we've never performed it, even though it's certainly a favorite work of mine and and is a favorite work of of pianists and audience alike. Uh, However, it's not not beloved because of the orchestral parts, which frankly are a little bit, or I should say rather secondary to, uh, to the solo part. This is not surprising. You know, Chopin was really the greatest, tower, most towering piano composer of the 19th century and wrote almost exclusively for solo piano. He has a few works with orchestra, notably these two very early concertos from the time he was 19 or 20 years old. He has a cello sonata that's quite remarkable and has a few other pieces, odds and ends, but I would say 95% of his output was really for solo piano. And it was at that at which he, he really excelled. Uh, when he was a young a young piano composer, pianist composer, growing up in Warsaw, uh, he decided that he needed to go to Paris, which was really the musical center of the world at the time for pianists. And before he left, he felt he had to create a couple of kind of calling card pieces. And and calling cards in this time for, for pianists were, in fact, these unbelievably virtuosic concerti that you would use to showcase your own unique gifts. And so he complied with these two uh, wonderful early works. There's been a lot of comment uh, from scholars and such about how he really didn't know very much about the orchestra and the orchestrations are not particularly notable or memorable. And I suppose that, in fact, is true. But at the same time, when you think of the other pianist composers of this time, most of whom are now forgotten, composer pianists like Moscheles or Thalberg or these these once towering figures of whom only, I guess, Liszt is now still remembered, they all would create concerti for themselves that would showcase their own unique gifts and trot them around. And so this was a, a, a typical kind of rite of passage that Chopin went through. And while the instrumentation, the, the orchestra parts are not terribly interesting, they certainly serve the function of amplifying and supporting and reinforcing the incredible beauties of these two concerti. Uh, this is the so-called second concerto, the F minor concerto. It actually is the one that he wrote first, but was published second. And while both are very beautiful, this one is a little bit shorter and, frankly, a little bit more to my taste, not quite as discursive as the first concerto. Uh, and just 
incredibly beautiful, and, and we're delighted to be able to be joined in this performance by one of my very favorite pianists, and certainly one of my favorite Chopin pianists, the brilliant young American pianist Orion Weiss, who's been with us many times before and has actually recorded a, a very daunting Christopher Rouse concerto about Robert Schumann called Seeing. But Orion was for many years a student of the great Emmanuel Axe, and very much in Emmanuel tradition uh, is a, a gorgeous uh, Beethoven, Brahms, Chopin player. So uh, he brought just incredible beauty and sophistication and musicality to this performance. Uh, the work is like most piano concertos in, in three movements, a big, wonderful, only slightly military first movement with lots of beautiful little wind commentary on the piano, an incredibly achingly beautiful slow movement, one of the great slow movements in the entire piano concerto repertoire. And then a, a, a charming third movement, not a particularly barn-burning finale, really more because he was obviously Polish, a great Polish mazurka, a kind of set of Polish dances with a kind of spicy in, internal part that sounds like even more mazurka-like than the opening. So a kind of gentle, lilting dance in three for the finale. Here it is, uh, Frederick Chopin's second piano concerto, the concerto in F minor. The pianist is Orion Weiss, accompanied by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Albany Symphony on WMHT-FM. I'm David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on the program is a, a monumental symphony by one of my absolute favorite composers and certainly one of my favorite romantic composers. And it's so interesting to do this concert that features two very early romantic composers, Chopin on the first half and Schumann on the second, uh, both of whom were born in the year 1810, so one year after Haydn's death, while Beethoven was still in his most fertile period. These were two really seminal figures in the creation of what we now consider the Romantic era in music, of this idea of the 19th century of kind of going beyond all the traditional models and kind of breaking them down and creating more narrative structures and more autobiographical structures and really pouring your heart and soul uh, into your music in a way that the late Romantics, Mahler and Tchaikovsky and uh, Wagner, well, Wagner was kind of a transitional figure, but Strauss and people like that did. Uh, these were the kind of parents of that movement, of that motion uh, toward very autobiographical, very hyper-expressionist, expressive and expressionist music. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, because Schumann, like Chopin, still really was very much connected to the world of Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Schubert and even back to Bach. He was a great aficionado of that music. He was a great writer on music. Uh, he was a incredibly knowledgeable kind of, dare I say, musical scholar and wrote extensively, had his own magazine for many, many years about music, uh, wrote about earlier music and also wrote about the most interesting composers of his own time. Uh, but Schumann, of course, was a, a very, dare I say, tortured individual. He had this wonderful marriage to Clara Schumann, who was kind of the support of his whole life. But uh, throughout his life, he um, struggled with what I guess today we would call mental illness. It's very unclear, and scholars are still debating and maybe debating forever, how much of his problems grew from his having contracted syphilis as a young man in his early 20s. Uh, it seems pretty clear from the from the symptoms he had in his final illness when he was institutionalized for the last two years of his life in his mid-40s, that uh, his symptoms seem to be uh, uh, typical symptoms of, of, of the end of a, of a syphilitic illness. Uh, but at the same time, there certainly are 
indications that he dealt very much with, you know, depression, possibly what we today would call bipolar disorder, or perhaps even paranoid schizophrenia. It's a little hard to separate, you know, how much of his his mood swings, his kind of taciturn nature from very early age through his his adulthood, um, his extravagant writing as opposed to his taciturn nature, his various a whole repertoire of different characters in whom in whose voices he spoke when he wrote uh, in literature. He had these two particular characters, Floristan, the sort of artistic temperament, and Eusebius, the more rational, and they were always at war with each other in his writings and I think also in his works. So a very complex figure, very tortured figure, a figure who died tragically in middle age of either mental illness or a combination of mental illness and syphilis or syphilis, at the same time, one of our greatest composers, a composer who wrote such absolute genre-creating works in the world of song and in solo piano work, chamber music and orchestra, and even some choral, vocal, semi-operatic works as well. So a, a towering figure, certainly, in, in my estimation. This is his second symphony. I, I've performed his other three symphonies quite frequently and love them all uh, and find them all much easier to perform because this piece is kind of the longest, most distended of the symphonies and most extensively written and also, in a way, the most abstract and, in many ways, the most challenging, uh, but is, is perhaps also the greatest of all the symphonies specifically because it is so abstract and because it's so large-scaled and so daring in terms of structure. Uh, at the same time, I think there is probably a fair bit of kind of unspoken narrative that goes through it that uh, if one learns about the piece and learns about Schumann, begins to become very much present in one's understanding of the piece. In 1844, uh, Robert Schumann sank into one of his deepest depressions ever and really could not function for about a year. And kind of to help rehabilitate himself, he and his beloved Clara began to do what any couple with a depression problem would do. They sat down and started a deep study of Johann Sebastian Bach's fugues and began in the evening writing their own fugues. And Robert wrote a great number of, of fugues in this year as a sort of, a real sort of, of, of emotional rehabilitation. They were mainly slow and, and fascinating organ fugues. He wrote a series of organ fugues, a series of piano fugues, and then he wrote a series of fugues for what was called pedal piano, which is kind of a, a piano with pedals to allow you to play you know, additional low organ tones, kind of a hybrid piano organ. And he really felt at the end of this exercise over some many months that that his deep study of Bach and that his creating works, uh, these very rational, almost mathematical fugal works inspired by Bach, they really did help him climb out of this depression. And the next piece he really created after this was, in fact, the Second Symphony. And uh, the work is in four, four movements, a very dramatic, powerful, slow introduction that gets gradually faster and turns into this kind of tortured uh, first movement in three, um, with this very strong second beat. And what begin, one begins to find as one studies this music is that Schumann, who was a, a very, as I said, very literary kind of composer, he sort of encrypted little musical ciphers in the music. So there's this little four-note figure that spells the name of Bach. Bom, bom, bim, bom, B flat, A, C, B, because in German, B natural is called is represented by the letter H. So Bach used this a lot as a sort of musical calling card to spell out his his name with these small intervals. And you find that little four-note figure kind of pervading the piece. So in a way, 
one already begins to have the sense that the Second Symphony is a, a sort of homage to Bach, uh, perhaps a, a thank you to him. Uh, so that, that kind of permeates the first movement. The second movement is one of the most famous violin excerpts in the entire repertoire. On virtually every violin audition, one finds this incredibly challenging and brilliant scherzo. So Schumann has flipped the usual form of the symphony, already kind of an arresting thing. Instead of putting the slow movement second, he puts the scherzo, the fast movement second. It's a very meteoric and exciting piece, but with these two beautiful little interludes, these little trios within the scherzo. The third movement, one of the most beautiful movements that Schumann ever wrote in any genre, is this kind of gorgeous, often thought of as a love song. And interestingly, um, this kind of continuous melody that I think points the way to, to Wagner and other, other music. But interestingly, the very opening of this theme is actually a direct quote from Bach's musical offering. So again, a, a sort of Bach homage, a Bach homage, uh, and, and just an incredibly gorgeous song movement that is usually, I'm sorry to say, played at about half the, the tempo that Schumann indicates. So I, of course, in, in our performance, try to take his tempo, which I think is actually a, a revelation. Instead of sounding like a terribly distended love song a la Bernstein's interpretation, with all due respect to the great Leonard Bernstein, uh, it actually becomes a much more organized and kind of powerful Bachian utterance with a great little fugue right set in the middle that sounds very much reminiscent of the fugue in, in the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. So Schumann continuously looking back to earlier composers for inspiration in this work. And then the last movement, the, the most arresting and interesting movement of the entire piece, begins like a very vital, exciting, triumphant last movement, as most symphonies do, as if he's finally found his way from some very dark places to, to triumph. But what's most interesting about this piece, it unfolds, the first half of the piece unfolds kind of traditionally, themes, exposition of the themes, and then the beginning of a sort of development of those themes. And then partway through the development, the music just stops, and he introduces this so far not actually yet stated in that form, beautiful little woodwind theme, hymn tune, that actually is a pretty direct quote from Beethoven's song cycle on the Ferne Geliebte, to the distant beloved. And it's a, a text about, you know, how you will make my song possible. And I actually think it, it may partially be a, a tribute to Bach, but I think this part is actually more about his love for Clara and about Clara and her incredible role rehabilitating him from this very dark depression he had been suffering. So the remainder of the last movement sort of abandons all of the prior materials of the last movement and, and focuses exclusively on building and generating more material out of this gorgeous hymn of love to Clara. And this is actually, for, for the time in which it was written, 1845, 46, this is an absolutely kind of radical idea to write this symphony, the expectation of these four movements with sonata forms, etc., and in the middle of the last movement, just to abandon that idea and to create this very autobiographical, very narrative kind of movement that takes us to a triumphant finale. So, And, and this is the kind of finale gesture that, that composers like Mahler, you know, 50 years later, will really be adopting and embracing in, in their own highly autobiographical work. So it's this idea of narrative and autobiography taking over the form of the symphony. So very radical and important idea that Schumann is presenting in this piece. I should mention also that in retrospect, that when you begin to hear this whole ending as a big hymn tune, as kind of a chorale, and you go back to the beginning, the, the very beginning of the piece began with this very basic kind of ur chorale in the brass with strings playing, you know, very mysterious chords underneath. The, the chorale seems like a quote from Haydn's last symphony, the 104th symphony, as if he's announcing in this piece, this will continue forward from where Haydn left off. But what becomes very interesting when you look back at the piece is that the whole piece was kind of built on this 
idea of chorale prelude, taking these beautiful church chorales or his own imagined church chorales and then creating material under and around them. And this is something that Bach loved to do in his organ works and in many of his works. So it's as if it's a chorale, it's a chorale prelude symphony. So again, the symphony in retrospect becomes this great homage piece to Bach and to Clara and really links Schumann to them, I believe, in a way that celebrates or that commemorates his appreciation to them for helping him to overcome this terrible dark period in his life. Here it is now, Robert Schumann's second symphony. The work is played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.